The opinions and views expressed in this program do not reflect those of KUCI, its management, or the UC Board of Regents. To find out more about this talk show or other talk shows broadcasting on KUCI, log on to our website at KUCI.org or check out the latest program guide. Good morning. You're listening to KUCI 88.9 FM in Irvine, California, streaming online at KUCI.org and podcasting on iTunes. Welcome to Privacy Piracy. I'm Lloyd, the show's engineer. We've enjoyed bringing this show since 2005. Your host is Mari Frank, a local attorney since 1985. She's a certified information privacy professional and the author of several books, including Safeguard Your Identity, Protecting Yourself with a Personal Privacy Audit, and The Complete Idiot's Guide to Recovering from Identity Theft. Mari's testified many times on privacy issues in Congress and the California Legislature. She served as a privacy expert for numerous court cases nationwide and at a White House press conference featured on C-SPAN. You may have seen her on Dateline, 48 Hours, CNN, NBC, The O'Reilly Factor, and many more shows, including her own 90-minute PBS television special, Protecting Yourself in the Information Age. To learn more about this radio show and our great guests, please visit KUCI.org slash privacypiracy. Mari, what's our show about this morning? Lloyd, today our show is about bioethics, health, and privacy. And we're so thrilled to have with us a professor who comes to us from the University of Louisville School of Medicine, but he has a, a law degree. And let me tell you a little bit about Mark Rothstein, and he's going to talk to us about privacy and our health care system. So let me tell you a little bit about him. Mark Rothstein is the Herbert F. Bill. Bale, Herbert F. Bale, Chair of Law and Medicine and the Director of the Institute for Bioethics, Health Policy, and Law at the University of Louisville School of Medicine. He has concentrated his research on health privacy, bioethics, genetics, and public health. He's a past president of the American Society of Law, Medicine, and Ethics and an elected member of the American Law Institute and an elected fellow of the Hastings Center. Lots more about him, but I think what's most interesting is he's the author or editor of 19 books and and over 200 book chapters and articles. Among his many honors, he was a 2013 recipient of the Louis D. Brandeis Privacy Award from Patient Privacy Rights. And you may remember that we have had Deborah Peel on our show many times, who is the founder of patientprivacyrights.org. So we're just thrilled to have you. Thank you, Mark, for joining us all the way from the east side of this country. It's my pleasure to be with you. Well, let me ask you, you have a JD degree. How is it that you kind of got into law and medicine, that blend? I started out... um with the more traditional legal approaches to privacy. Um, And then several years ago, I was the director of something called the Health Law uh, and Policy Institute at the University of Louisville. I'm sorry, I'm not where now. I was at the University of Houston. Um, And I, I began coordinating all these interdisciplinary programs in health and uh, law, and I became very interested in issues specifically um, related to health privacy. And um, I, I think a big 
push for me came in 1999 when I was appointed to um, be a member of the National Committee on Vital and Health Statistics. And uh, this is the federal advisory group to the Secretary of HHS and to Congress on health uh, information. And, and I was responsible for chairing their privacy issues. And, and so we did things like um, how do we prepare the country for the HIPAA privacy rule when it uh, comes out, and um, what are we going to do with regard to electronic health records and so forth. And so all of these issues became very important to me, and I've concentrated much of my research on, on them in the last 10 or 15 years. Well, thank God you're doing that because this is such a huge area now. I mean, when we talk about sharing health, electronic health records, when we when we talk about all these uh, the security of our information, and now with the Internet of Things and with you know thinking about having never to take a pill again, that we might just have something embedded in us that just releases what we need when we need it. That's kind of scary, too, about security and privacy. So this whole issue of healthcare privacy has just ballooned. It's not like in the olden days where you just talked to your doctor and it was confidential, and that was your privacy issue. You know, now it's uh, far beyond just talking to your doctor and just having, you know, private records that are kept in your office. Now they're they're all over the place. So we're really happy that you're doing what you're doing. So tell me, <laughs> do we have adequate health privacy laws in our country? Well, that's an easy question to answer, and the answer is no. <laughs> uh, we are one of the few countries that does not have a specific, comprehensive national health privacy law. Uh, the closest thing that we have to it is the Health Insurance Portability and Accountability Act, so-called HIPAA, and its privacy rule. Um, but that was never intended to be the be-all and end-all of privacy. It was enacted only to cover the privacy of records that were sent for billing purposes. And therefore, the HIPAA privacy rule is limited. It, it doesn't apply to all uses of health information, and it provides few remedies. Individuals can't sue if their rights have been violated, and there are all sorts of things that are defective um, and inadequate about the HIPAA privacy rule. There are some state health privacy laws, but they're not um, in every state, and they're not much better And overall. So it's something that we really need to think about strengthening if, if we're going to be able to react to the changes in technology, the changes in the way healthcare is uh, delivered in the United States. Yeah. So the HIPAA law seemed somewhat more like a disclosure law, but it didn't even disclose everything that uh, it should disclose. <laughs> so um, what about when they added the high-tech uh, for security? What did you think about that? Did that help it at all? Well, the High-Tech Act, which was added in 2009, provides some additional um, things that, that should help security. For example, there's a requirement that if there's a breach, there must be prompt notification and things of that sort. Um, that helps, but the, the High-Tech Act was really designed to 
to uh, foster the rollout of electronic health records, and um, it it does that by providing incentives to healthcare providers and eventually penalties for those who don't uh, transform their paper records into electronic health records. It was never intended as well to be a you know a, a, a privacy law that's going to um, fix things that that exist. Right, right. So, you know, when people think about going to their doctors, they think that they're, uh, a lot of people think that their information is really going to be kept confidential and it's sacrosanct. You know, this is like back from the Hippocratic Oath, right? Right. So, um, what do you say to people when they say, well, you know, uh, isn't everything going to be kept confidential, you know, with my doctor, if I talk to my doctor? What is the response to that? The response is that may have been a reasonable thing to believe many years ago when healthcare was uh, quite simple, but now healthcare is quite complicated and it's unreasonable for a patient to ever have those expectations. Let me briefly tell you a personal story about my health records and uh, that will give you an idea of some of the problems. When I moved to Louisville in 2001, uh, my primary appointment here is in the Department of Medicine, and I needed a um, a primary care physician. But the ones in the medical center are my colleagues now in my department, so I didn't want to have a my own doctor because of my privacy yeah. <laughs> interests. Um, somebody that I'm going to see every day in faculty meetings. So I got a referral to a doctor who who's in Indiana, which, um, for those people not familiar with the, the geography, is just across the river from Louisville, and that was fine, and I've got an excellent doctor, and he practiced by himself uh, with uh, two colleagues. Uh, but within the last few years, uh, as he's nearing retirement age, like many physicians, he sold his practice to the local hospital. Mm. And the local hospital then merged with a with another hospital that is in Louisville, and that hospital, in fact, merged again with an entity that now owns the university hospital here. Mm. So, from having my medical records basically isolated in this one doctor's office, now they're part of a huge system and they're accessible to any physician who's practicing in in the system, and that would include all the doctors here in the medical center. So through the consolidation, um, many times one's health records are available much more widely than you would think. Wow. So, Mark, let me ask you a question about that. So, are they're accessible to doctors who even are not even treating you? I mean, is that any kind of violation of HIPAA that if someone, I know if, if a nurse goes in and she's not treating the patient, at least out here in California, that would be considered a violation. But, you know, I've seen this come up before in privacy discussions. Can a doctor who is not treating you and uh, go into your medical records um for just any reason, or does it have to be research, or what right do they have to go in there? Well, in theory, um, nobody, physician, nurse, or allied health professional, should be accessing your medical records um, unless you are their patient 
or they have some really good reason to be in there. And, and their methods for tracking that, such as um, audit trails, by yeah. having limited access or audit trails or all these other things. And so then physicians and other healthcare providers who you know, abuse their access uh, privileges, in theory, should be sanctioned by the institution. Sometimes we've seen that, but, but probably not um, enough to reflect uh, the way that it's done. Many people don't realize that, and um, they also don't realize that when someone even has a legitimate need to access your files, they may not have a legitimate need to access your entire files. Right. So, for example, if um, if I were taken to the emergency room where, uh, because I sprained my ankle in a softball game, um, the ER doctors and nurses really don't need to have access to my reproductive health history or things that happened 25 years ago in terms of mental health care or substance abuse or some other right. sensitive issue, and yet it's there. Now, the, the fact of the matter is um, most doctors don't have the time or the inclination to do this. Right. But if you're a patient who has something that's sensitive in your record, that's not good enough. You want some uh, ways in which that is absolutely not possible to do, and we don't have that yet. Right, right. You know, you were talking a few minutes ago about how there's no right to have a private right of action to sue if um, if a health care uh, agency violates your privacy. So the only thing is, is to go through the Department of Health and Human Services. And how often do, I mean, if you make a complaint, they can't represent you, correct? That's right. And um, they can't get any relief necessarily for you. Um, what they're trying to do is basically tell the hospital or the doctor or whoever, um, this is a violation. If it's egregious, they will maybe get a fine uh, for that um, entity, especially if it's a repeat offense, and uh, they'll get some sort of assurance that they're not going to do it again. But that doesn't necessarily help you out. Right. So the person who's been victimized, let's say that somebody um, put up something horrible, like uh, said that you had HIV, some doctor was, you know, kind of revealed that in social networking site or something. Um, I guess that would be a defamation suit or not really if you actually have HIV. But if, well, if it could be did, invasion of privacy. Yeah, invasion of privacy, which would be outside of the HIPAA thing. But, um, but yeah, so if, if they... If they have some other violation, you you can't you can't sue them. So, is there any um, attempt now to to change that rule at all? Uh, not that I'm aware of. And if there were, frankly, I don't think there's the political support yeah. that would be necessary. But I think uh, unless consumers um, know their rights and exercise them collectively through groups such as patient privacy rights, then um, nothing really is going to change. And um, people need to understand that health privacy at the moment is very fragile. Yes, yes. So is there a constitutional right to information privacy? 
Well, actually, there is not. There's a famous Supreme Court that, case that was decided in 1977 uh, for our lawyers in the listening world, uh, the Whalen versus Roe case. And in that case, uh, the question was whether a New York law that required that uh, prescription drug information for scheduled substances um, could be collected by the state, and or does that violate privacy? And uh, the Supreme Court did something interesting in the case. They said, we're not going to decide whether there is a right to informational privacy, but assuming there is one, it wasn't violated in this case because what the government was doing here was important and reasonable, and since that time, virtually every state has a similar law uh, that has been upheld. And as the courts have heard more of these privacy cases, um, they assume that there is such a right, but without saying that it is, from my perspective, um, that's really not uh, quite adequate, especially because invariably, even though they assume there's this right, they find for the government and say that the government had a a good reason for um, collecting the information that it was collecting. So um, I, I think there's a misconception that, oh, yes, um, you know, informational privacy must be protected by the Constitution, and that's not clear clearly the case. Yeah. And the U.S. Privacy Act, which was meant to give us information privacy with, with regard to the government only, um, that seems to uh, need some updating, too, doesn't it? Well, that's right. The Privacy Act um, was enacted in 1975 as one of the sort of the post-Watergate reforms, and it was supposed to apply across the board to everyone, but uh, eventually in the legislative process, it now only applies to the federal government. There are some very good things about the the Privacy Act, but uh, we need a Privacy Act that applies across the board. Um, one of the things that uh, we talked earlier about, the HIPAA privacy rule, it doesn't apply beyond health care. So that it doesn't apply to health information in educational settings, in employment settings, in mm. insurance settings, and so forth. And there are so many places in which health information goes these days that that um, we really need a, a more comprehensive approach. Yeah. So when you're talking about where things are going, I mean, we're shifting to electronic health records all over the place. And um, are, are, what about that? Is that going to help us with protecting our privacy or what's what's happening with that? Well, it has the potential to be very helpful to individual privacy. Uh, if it's done right, if it's done carefully, and if it's done with uh, some controls in place, but it also could be uh, a way in which health privacy is violated on a much larger scale. So some of the attributes of electronic health records that make them valuable also um, put privacy in jeopardy. So, for example, uh, electronic health records are comprehensive we can no longer keep our health information in silos by individual doctors. Mm -hmm. Now, electronically, they're all combined. And they're 
health records are longitudinal, which means they go over a long period of time, theoretically, from cradle to grave. Now, that's great in terms of you know, you've got lots of health information, you don't have to repeat tests, you've got diagnoses and so forth. But if you had something 20 years ago that was sort of embarrassing, um, if people knew about it now, it never leaves your health records. Right. And, and so what we need to do is uh, appreciate this and find ways of not destroying that information but not having it so readily available to everyone who comes down the line. And, you know, when you were talking before about um, your medical records and maybe something that you wouldn't want to show to one doctor, but you'd want to show something else to the doctor, you know. Um, So are there ways in which this information can be segregated and encrypted or... or There are are, uh, many ways that are being developed, but there hasn't been a great push from either the vendors or the um, or the government or the institutions to adopt these and i think we need more pressure put on from the patients to to basically demand this also because just because you're a patient and you're asked for some information doesn't mean that you necessarily have to provide it. There are many instances when information is, you know, ir- irrelevant or overly intrusive, and patients should have the opportunity to say, I don't want to provide you with that information. If you insist on that to treat me, then uh, I'm, I'm afraid I'll have to go somewhere else. I mean, again, uh, in my um, personal health, um, I have had back problems for many years, and every now and then, when it gets really bad, I'll go to a pain clinic to try to control the pain, and one of the first things that happens in many pain clinics is even before you see a doctor, they hand you a sheet of paper um, they want to see if you're depressed because it's a cofactor for pain. And they will ask you all these sensitive questions about your financial situation, yeah. your family <laughs> situation, your sex life, and so forth. And I will hand them right back and say, I don't think that's really relevant. I've brought my films with me, and if you want to see what's wrong, you yeah. can just look at them, but I, I don't want to fill these out. And no doctor who's ever had their form put back in their face as said, oh, I'm not going to treat you on, under those uh, circumstances. So I think patients need to um, be a, a little bolder and um, uh, more assertive of their privacy rights. Yeah, and then what if you tell the doctor something that you want him to keep confidential? Um, you know, would, how can you be sure that that's not going to get into your electronic medical records? Well, there is no way that you can be sure of that, and um, there are all sorts of laws that uh, require um, physicians to maintain information that they're given, and um, only certain kinds of information is really kept confidential. The HIPAA privacy rule only specifies one, and that is psychotherapy notes, in which therapists not put the diagnosis, but the basis of the diagnosis. Patient told me about childhood and whatever, 
and this will be kept separate and will not be sent uh, to other healthcare providers or accessible. But um, I, th- I think you would need an assurance that something is not going into your records unless you, uh, to be confident that that um, your your secrets are going to be kept. Yeah. Huh. So, what privacy threats are raised by big data? Well, uh, big data is the big thing today. Um, you see it and hear about it all the time. Um, big data can mean a variety of things. It can mean just a huge data set, lots of information that you might get, for example, from uh, doing whole genome sequencing. Or it can mean the collection of sort of disparate data information from many different sources, um, many times where you would think there's really no connection between what I purchase in my health, what I purchase in a department store or in a food uh, supermarket, um, or what I put online, yet big data combines all these disparate data sets and through certain algorithms comes up with associations, not necessarily causations, but correlations. And um, there are many people who think that's the greatest thing that we've come up with, and nobody should be concerned about privacy. Um, I'm concerned about privacy. Many of, the, many of the times we don't consent to the uses of our information, or the consent is sort of pro forma click-through consent on the Internet, or there's some, uh, you know, uh, use policy that we're supposed to read, and that failure to object represents uh, consent. I think big data is fine as long as uh, people understand what, how their information is being used and uh, agree to have it used. And, you know, another thing, though, Mark, that, you know, when, when we have these big data, all these combinations of databases all over the place, there's a lot of errors. You know, I mean, all you have to do is look at your credit reports, which you do have a right to see, right. and and you see that there's errors. And, you know, I've dealt for years with victims of identity theft, you know. So um, that's another really scary thing about big data is that, you know, unless you could see the entire profile uh, and correct it and, and have that ability, that's to me, something even more dangerous because people can make, uh, you know, assumptions about you and profile you, and it may not even be correct. Well, and also the the criteria that are used for making such determinations um, are often viewed as proprietary, yes. and you have no idea where someone reaches a conclusion that yes. you're more likely to have a substance abuse problem, let's say, um, based on on what you tell people on, on Twitter or Facebook. Right, right. We have just a few more minutes, and I, I wanted, I'm kind of excited to find out a little bit about your uh, 
research that you're doing now. Just want, if you've just started to listen in, you got to listen to this whole thing. You got to listen to our recording. But we've been speaking with Mark Rothstein, who is, you know, he is the chair of law and medicine and the director of the Institute for Bioethics, Health Policy, and Law at the University of Louisville uh, School of Medicine. But can you just tell us a little brief ab- about the research that you're doing? Sure. Um, at the moment, I'm doing a um, major international research project for the NIH, and um, the reason for it is that in genetics research, the researchers need increasingly large sets of data, like big data, uh, but also samples from many sources. And the laws in many countries, not in the U.S. so much, um, prohibit the, the sending of that information overseas to other countries. So I've put together a consortium of the health privacy experts in 26 major countries doing this research. Um, we're getting together and trying to figure out how we can uh, improve the communication and uh, um, research capacity internationally while also still protecting health privacy of individuals. So that's quite a challenge. Oh, wow. Well, when that is uh, on its way, we'd love to have you back on the show to talk about that. Sounds great. So why don't you just give the website for the university, and it's time to go. Uh, The website is uh, louisville.edu, and uh, people can reach me at mark.rothstein at louisville.edu. Thank you so much, Mark. You're doing great work, and we look forward to talking to you again. Bye-bye. My pleasure, Mari. Anytime. Okay. You've been listening to KUCI 88.9 FM Minervine and KUCI.org. On the net, I'm Mari Frank. Join us every Monday morning at 8 a.m. and visit our website at KUCI.org slash privacy piracy. Write us an email about what your concerns are about privacy in the information age. Thanks. Stay private. The opinions and views expressed in this program do not reflect those of KUCI, its management, or the UC Board of Regents. 